welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly, and it will play music that is unique to you, your life song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Welcome to episode eight of Spine and Body Podcast. I I do realize that somewhere in this podcast, it could or could not say that it is episode seven, but it's truly episode eight. I uh, I had enough push from people trying to get the uh, trigger point injection out early. I don't want to say that they were Dr. Mahuti groupies, but you know that may or may not be true. Uh, let's just say that at one point this was episode seven and now it's episode eight. So today is a great uh, conversation with Shelly Lewis, a physical therapist that I've worked with and known for a long time. And, uh, there has been some, what I consider major steps forward in, in stability and kind of tying a ton of stuff together as far as that goes. I think that we're going to find that more and more the entire body works together and, a coupling of muscles uh, to create stability, both dynamic stability and then also uh, just you know stability. Uh, areas of frozen, as as uh, Nikolai Bernstein would say, areas it creates areas of frozen, both in stationary and uh, what we call dynamic, so in motion. And we're going to discuss that. And I really think this is the beginning of the stability conversation. I'm anxious to talk with with more people about this, but just realize I brought up stability as an entire podcast. And this step forward, this breath holding that we're going to talk about today, I think is a major important step. So enjoy this, enjoy this podcast. Uh, Shelly is, Shelly is a wonderful person. She, um, she is professional. She is driven. Uh, she's also the person that will talk to you about your kids and, and her eyes, you know, kind of uh, tear up as she's she's just so caring about other people in the midst of being this type A personality. And she's a lot like a lot of other healthcare providers, like most healthcare providers. They are uh, servants. They're really in their in their best mode when they are helping other people. And I think you'll see that in this podcast. So enjoy. Okay, so welcome. This is uh, uh, the next episode of Spine and Body Podcast. Uh, today we have Shelly Lewis, who's owner of uh, College Park Physical Therapy, and then also ESPT, which is uh, exercise, uh, sport, exercise and Sport Physical Therapy, which is a new entity that we're excited to talk about. But uh, I've worked with Shelly for a very long time. Uh, I feel like my career as a musculoskeletal uh, practitioner has kind of evolved uh, a lot of that over the years with conversations with Shelly, with bouncing things off Shelly. Um, the book that I wrote came from conversations that we had. Everything has kind of been this, you know, let me bounce it off and see what Shelly thinks as we, as we go along. So I, I, I think a lot of my 
life or my progression as a, as a sports medicine doctor and a, a musculoskeletal specialist has been uh, intertwined with physical therapists and it's been intertwined with, with Shelly a lot. So we're excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Okay, so talk about uh, what got you into physical therapy. I knew I always wanted to do something medical when I was young and very young, like third grade. I knew I wanted to do something medical. I went to college, thought maybe I wanted to be a nurse, was about a semester away from being a nurse and decided I didn't want to be a nurse and um, told my parents that I promised I would go back to school, but I was dropping out <laughs> of that semester. And, and when was this? What year? No, I mean, what part of college? Because you were a small-town Nebraska girl, right? Yes. So I started, went to undergrad for a year, then applied to nursing school, got in, was about two and a half years into a three-year nursing program and decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. At that time, nursing was very different than it is now. Now there's it's completely different. But So I went back, did some observation, narrowed it down to physician's assistant or physical therapist and fell in love with physical therapy because I just love exercise, fitness, all those things. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad I chose what I chose. Very good. So then you ended up, somehow you ended up in California, wasn't that right? Mm -hmm. How was that? Um, and where'd you go to physical therapy school? KU. KU. KU Med, yep. University of Kansas. Yes. I did go to California. I was in California for my first job at uh, Long Beach Community Hospital, small little hospital. Had great experience there, both inpatient and outpatient. Um, was there, chose the job because I thought there was gonna be a really good mentor there. I knew I needed to improve my manual therapy skills and she was really good. And I was there about three weeks and she resigned <laughs> and moved out of state. And I was the lead therapist three weeks out of <laughs> You were your own mentor. Yeah, I was my own mentor. <laughs> yes. So uh, I was kind of thrown in the fire, but it worked out. And, you know, you, you, you're forced to learn and you're forced to figure stuff out. Right. So then when we met, you had started your, you had started your own practice. And I don't know when that was, but you were doing home health. And I don't know when you started it, but, um, you know, I mean, it was one of those deals where I was, I was looking for good therapy. And you guys were south of where we are now. Uh, as far as Kansas City goes, and uh, you had a couple employees, and I think you guys were doing home health, wasn't that right? I, um, my passion was outpatient, did that in California, had the riots in California, got a little homesick, decided, you know what, I want to go back to the Midwest. So came back to Kansas City, did outpatient for a couple years, had an opportunity to um, actually purchase a home health business, did that. That was awesome when I had three children in a period of 18 months. and But outpatient always was drawing me back. So opened a clinic from ground zero in um, 2000. And when did we met? About... 2005. 2005. So actually opened the clinic in 2002. And then had been up and running a little bit. And yes, I had a part-time PT and a PTA when I met you. Mm -hmm. And we were phasing out of the home health and really just focusing more on the uh, outpatient okay. about the time we met. Right. So. Yeah. And for me, you know, it was one of those deals where I, I wanted, 
I wanted people to learn. I wanted people to show up and leave physical therapy with more knowledge than they, they went in with. And you guys were great at that. I really felt like my patients were, were progressing, but this has all kind of changed over the last 15 years. So talk a little bit about how, you know, we, used, we talk a lot about stability on this podcast and, and talk a little bit about how stability started back when you, in 2000 or even earlier, how you guys were taught about stability. And then, and then we'll start talking a little bit about how that has progressed. Yeah, well, in, in physical therapy world, you know, Shirley Sarman was our mentor. And so kind of off that, we built core stability and pretty much every physical therapist, personal trainer, exercise guru taught core stability, which was kind of pull your belly button to your spine and, you know, hold on. And, and if you had strong abs and you had a strong TVA, your core was strong, and as we have talked about many times, core meant different things to different people. But that was the basic premise. Pilates were, was becoming more and more popular back in the early 2000s and evolving and really, you know, played into that. We used to talk about how people we'd, we'd say, yeah, when you're pushing the go, uh, the grocery cart or pushing the, you know, I mean, that was kind of the, the, the usual thing where we said, okay, rock that pelvis under you, right? This is the things that my wife, who's also a physical therapist, would say at the same, you know, she'd say, okay, we're taught to kind of rock that pelvis under us and hold, grip our stomach tight. And, and that was the, that was the only one that I remember was, was pushing something and, holding everything tight. Yeah, prior to um, the early 2000s, that was our mindset. Do a pelvic tilt, you know, posteriorly rotate your pelvis underneath you, flatten out your low back, and push the lawnmower, push the grocery cart, push the stroller, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Then we kind of evolved into try to find more of a neutral spine, but you're going to use those abs, that ab gripping mechanism, to hold yourself there. And that's that's more where you and I intersect. Right. So I remember, and this was really, this was kind of one of those things where I went, hey, there's more to it, was when you guys would, you know, you'd lay people down, we'd have them fire their transverse abdominis, feeling the back and trying to make sure that they weren't uh, firing their hamstrings at the same time. And everybody was fine. Well, not everybody, but you know what I mean? Everybody sure. was firing their hamstrings, sure. me included, right? And it was just kind of one of those deals where we spent years basically pushing that and pushing that and pushing that and trying to get people to do it. And we're still doing it. It's just, you know, things continue to evolve, evolve. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was a lot of time of us trying to figure out how does this work and how do we get people long-term relief, right? I mean, you, you remember that, that whole time where it just, it just seemed like every month we had a new passion as far as trying to yes. figure things out. Yes. And, you know, the commonality, whether you're talking the early 90s or now, is we understand we need stability so that we can have mobility. What has evolved is our mindset and our thought process of how are we going to achieve and how are we going to teach that stability. Correct. Yeah, you know, and I've talked about this in another podcast, but the Nikolai Bernstein from the early 1900s in Russia used to talk about uh, areas of of frozen so that you can have areas of freedom. And what we see with people with, with back pain or, you know, any of these uh, different pains is they're adding more and more areas of frozen because they've got the wrong areas 
froze. But as they add these areas, they get less and less freedom of motion. And if they just go back and find the right areas of frozen, then it would free up so many more, so many other areas of their body. Okay, so uh, before we go into kind of, you know, these uh, last few years, talk about what you think makes a, a good physical therapist. That could be different for different settings, but we'll talk about the outpatient private practice physical therapy world. Someone that's curious, you know, someone that's curious, willing to to look outside the norm, not ex- not get into a rut of everything's the same, and just be curious and ask questions, mm-hmm. listen to your patient, get feedback, mm-hmm. and evolve and adapt based on how the patient responds and what the patient needs and what the patient wants to accomplish. I've always thought, you know, like as a physician, you know, I don't have the day-to-day interaction with patients, and you guys don't, not exactly day-to-day. But you guys go on a journey with people. And, and I, think that's, I think that's so cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when you see someone who, let's say, a common back pain referral patient you may send us, we may see that patient 8 to 12 times over a period of, of a couple months. That's a lot more than what they usually see their dentist or their eye doctor or go get their physical or even see you. They may see you, but you say, come back and see me after you've completed physical therapy. So that, so you may not have seen them for a couple months, whereas we develop a rapport, we learn about their family, we learn about their job, we learn about you know everything that's going on, which ultimately plays a role in what plan of care we develop for that patient, what goals they have, and how we move them through that process. But we, we learn a lot about our patients and they learn a lot about us. One of the things that I um, envy about teachers is that they'll go on these nine month journeys where they, where they spend all this time, right? And, you know, I think each of us, anybody who's good at, at, you know, medicine or physical therapy is a teacher, but these teachers will have these lesson plans that, that they will, they will refine over the years and they get better and better at that, or they're just naturally good teachers. But, but I mean, you know, some of them are just naturally good, but even the naturally good ones refine them over the years. And, and I think that, Having this this set, this is what we do, was almost holding back the physical therapy teachers and the you know the curious physical therapy teachers. And as they they kind of build this curiosity and, and the things that we've seen over the past fifteen years is kind of a revol- an evolving of this lesson plan to the point now where it's got to be even more exciting because there's so many things that you'll see in somebody that can be fixed. Versus what we were looking at, and and that's that's kind of what I want to get into next. But hasn't that just been the most kind of the most exciting part of this of this of this evolution? Yes, and I feel like most of us, for the most part, for a long time, have have looked what you call above and below, or looked at the entire kinetic chain. Not you know there probably are still people out there that if they get a shoulder referral, they look at the the glenohumeral joint and don't look much beyond that. But I think for the most part, people are looking above and below, so to speak, where the diagnosis is and figuring things out. I think we've all gotten better at that over the years. But again, you know, if you're, I'm very competitive, I'm results driven. And what led me to be more curious is patients that were getting better, but then they would return with something else. And and it, bothered me because my thought process was, if this is really 
what they need to be doing, they shouldn't have th these other things down the road short of a, you know, acute injury or something. So I just got curious as to, I knew we were on the right track and I we're, our patients were getting better and did get better, but there was something missing, you know, and the, every step along the way, you just ask more questions and go listen to and read people that are much smarter than you <laughs> and have um, looked at things differently than you. And um, then you kind of come together with tools in your toolbox that then you teach your patient and they put those tools in their toolbox. Right. So initially, and you reminded me of this, but initially I, I started looking into the foot. I tried to get a, 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 um, a patent for foot strengthening. And of course I come to the physical therapy group and I say, we got to strengthen feet. And then after that, it was, you know, I mean, it was like step by step, right? Yes. I mean, there, there was a number of things where we were like, okay, but what about this? And, you know, now we're working on kind of this soleus glute strengthening for ACL injuries. But it was every step of the way I'd come to you and go, okay, what about this? But there was that time, you know, and I mentioned this previously, where I just put out the book, I'm deadlifting, and I drop the bar off the platform and pull it back on and hurt myself. And I come to you guys and I'm like, something's wrong. Right. I don't, I mean, I felt like God kind of struck me down and went, all right, figure this out. And it was, and, and it was kind of this progression where I got into psoas and for a year and a half, I was pushing psoas with you guys. Do you remember that? I, I remember that well. Yes. And the thing that, the thing that you guys kept coming back to me with was people aren't getting better. You know, they're, we're getting them better, but they're not getting better. They're not staying better. Not staying better. That's right. So, so, so talk about that just a little bit. And just a, a little bit, first of all, how frustrating it was. Because you knew, I mean, you were convinced, as was I, we were on the right track. But that was frustrating. Yeah, and the psoas is very controversial in the PT world. Um, I liken it to revelations in the Bible. <laughs> but, you know, there's a many schools of thought about the psoas and you know, a few weeks ago, I was listening to something that this this podcaster indicated that the psoas really wasn't a true muscle in the manner that that we typically consider muscles muscles. So, you know, it's all over the place. But yes, you injured yourself. Your psoas was definitely angry and flared up. You then started paying attention, more attention, I think, than usual, not that you hadn't before, to your patients and we're finding a commonality that there's a lot of people that come your way that, that had angry so as as well. So, you know, we, there's many approaches, there's manual, there's modalities, there's stretches, there's exercise, you know, there, you can throw a lot of things at it, which we were, and, and we could have somebody on the table and get that. So as a little more, relaxed, more calmed down. It was feeling better, but they'd get off the table and go back to life and come back. And it, it, we hadn't stuck, you know, they weren't getting that lasting relief, which was what I was finding with myself. And that frustrated me because I wanted people that like I'm competitive for people in, in a way. So I wanted them to have that lasting relief. I wanted them to see a result and be able to maintain that and build off of that and be better when they left our clinic than they were pre-injury. And there was a certain subset of patients that, you know, we just weren't getting there. Maybe we're getting 60 to 80%, but we weren't getting that 
85 to 100 percent range and it bothered me so i just kept looking like right. what is it what what are we missing right so describe that well that was that was a journey in and of itself but i really kind of happened upon um some therapists that focus on breathing and alignment and that made sense to me as using um proper alignment and breathing for your stability. So it was obtaining stability using breath and alignment more so, and actually not ab gripping. And it involves um, teaching the patient, first of all, how to align themselves. And the physical therapists have always talked about posture, um, but this is kind of a twist on what we learned with the plumb line in school. And a different than what you and I had taught and talked about with, you know, sternum up, abs on, spine neutral, and that was not a very, as I now look back, it wasn't very fluid and very dynamic. Right. And I, and I mentioned that we, we taught people to be uh, uh, breath hold. We taught people, I, I say that we taught people to hold in a fart. I know you don't say that, but I say that. I say it, we taught people to to grip all day long. And it's because everybody was teaching that. Yes, like I said earlier, you know, exercise specialists, personal trainers, physical therapists, you name it, you know, that's what every, we were all teaching because at the time, that was the best we knew. And I remember you, you, sent me that, you sent me that first podcast that you listened to, and I was like, we got to contact this person. You, you are on to something, right? Yeah. And you did more than contact them. Yeah. So I just really pursued it and um, looked at different Therapists, physical therapists, exercise specialists, not only, you know, and if they're Canadian, they're physiotherapists or Australian, they're physiotherapists, um, and, and just tried to educate myself. And then I started just trying to change my own alignment and my own breathing and immediately saw a change. And back to you and your psoas, what I have found is when you fix the alignment and breathing, all of a sudden, the psoas is no longer a problem. Right, and that was the, that was huge. And you know, I mean, it's still a journey for me because I never, I never quite uh, get it. You know, I'm, I'm constantly behind on my schedule. I'm constantly behind on all these things. I got six kids, right? So I'm, I'm never quite getting over there and getting the complete formal training. But just the difference that it's made, you know, personally, and then to see the people who buy in, and and to see. Uh, an instant change, which is really helpful. The instant change is really helpful because uh, so many people need that instant change when you're talking about breathing and they're going, I don't get it. And then they get, they get, you know, extraordinary improvement right away. But then also the, the long-term, the long-term kind of uh, changes. So, so talk about how the things that you've seen with patients. Oh my goodness. I see um, change for the better and lasting change and applicable change that affects their performance, whether they are a high-level college athlete, a professional athlete, or whether they are someone recovering from a, a TIA, someone with back pain that sits at a computer all day. Um, just this week, or last week, we had a patient come in with... Um, had had lung cancer years before, 
really operates at about 40% of his lung capacity is now battling another form of cancer. And the way he came to us was his wife had started with us the week prior. And we were trying to teach her stability. So we started with the alignment and the breathing. And she figured out that her husband needed to see us. And she wanted him seen tomorrow. And so we made that happen. And it was just odd for, you know, more of a direct access spouse to refer their husband and be that adamant that, that they needed to get in that soon and, and what have you, but, but it worked out. And when he came in, um, and I, I confirmed this with her yesterday, he had for the longest, his, his um, O2 sat was around 90 to 92, and that was the best he could do with all his treatments, with everything going on. That day he came in and we and we check it and it was in that 90 to 92 range depending on what he was doing. We taught him in that first session alignment and how to breathe. And I forgot to mention he also in that first surgery his phrenic nerve was damaged and cut. So we you know we go into this thinking, oh my gosh, how are we going to get any improvement here? But Phrenic nerve affects the diaphragm. Yes. If the phrenic nerve is cut, one, at least half of your diaphragm does not move the way it should. Correct. So we were really, you know, wondering how much effect we'd be able to have with this gentleman. First visit, his his oxygen level went up to 95, 96. I talked to his wife yesterday. He's implemented over the last week, and he's consistently in 96, 97. And it's, it's been life-changing for him just in a week. He feels better, his energy level. And this is a guy that is currently going through cancer treatment. It is is very, you know, with COVID and it, it was, you know, risky for him to even come in, but we took all the precautions and it, and it, and it affected him. I have um, kids that are pursuing professional volleyball, professional football careers, it's been changing, life-changing for them, and they're so appreciative, like, wow, I wish I would have known this. Right. So let's before we do that, because by starting talking about the guy with the breathing, mm-hmm. anyone listening to this may think, oh, I'm going to breathe better. Yeah, you, and my oxygen will go up. Not Yes, but kind of explain the science behind you know, how, the body, how the body uses breath holding to stabilize you when it's supposed to only use that kind of as an emergency or in lifting something super heavy. Sure. For simplicity's sake, when you inhale and exhale, you should have interplay between your diaphragm and your pelvic floor. And your abdominal muscles should expand and contract and and be more relaxed and just kind of go with the flow of the airflow. So breath holding is fine if you're doing, you know, moving a piano or some max deadlift or something like a short one-time huge effort creates super stability through the spine Great. when in those in those rare instances right but what we found and found in myself found in many patients Me? is yes we're breath holding when we're really fairly sedentary not doing much picking so, up a coffee cup why are, why are we breath holding we don't need that much effort so why did, why did that happen well back to the alignment issue back to habitual, who knows where it started, but a lot of people are breathing in the upper lobe of their lung. They're never really fully taking a, an inhale or fully exhaling and moving that air. So as the diaphragm moves down into the um, thoracic cavity, it creates inner abdominal pressure by pushing down on 
organs, intestines, those things. And then as you, um, that's what the inhale, as you exhale, that pelvic floor triggers, lifts up. There's a, there's kind of like an, as an elevator goes up the floors of a building, the muscles start to fire based on what you're doing. You know, if, if you may need your right oblique and you may need your left oblique, you may need some rectus, you may need some TVA, whatever needs to happen happens as you're doing that exhale based on what activity you're doing to give you the stability you need to proceed with the movement. And so the really cool thing is it's based on the demand of the activity you're doing and there's different levels. And so it's not just the same pull my belly button in when I get up in the morning and I don't let go until I go to bed. Um, and so it will adapt and change with, with, you know, if you're running, if you're sitting at your computer. The mechanism is the same. It just changes based on the demand of the load you're putting on. Right. So we talk about the fact that when people start breath holding, they all the time, they start losing all the other areas that they should be using. So yes, you know, the diaphragm and pelvic floor have a, have a ton to do with stability. But if you're if you're breath holding, you're losing so many other, you're losing, you're basically creating so much frozen that it takes away from so many other, so many other things that the low back and the, and the lumbar spine or, or even the whole body is supposed to do since it's, it is, it's in the, in the sense that the word core works, it is the, the area of our body that provides so much stability. And if you're overdoing it, you are, you're really putting yourself in a terrible position. Right. And you know, the diaphragm, is very closely associated with the psoas. The diaphragm has to be able to move up and down in order to create that stability and meet the demand of what you're doing. If that diaphragm is just sitting there and not moving because you don't ask it to, or you know you were pregnant and you got in a posture that, and the baby was there and your diaphragm couldn't move down and no one ever taught you how to breathe after that and it's still sitting up there not moving, you're not gonna have that stability that you need in a nor normal breathing pattern. So I think that might be where people then just grip their abs and hold their breath and hold on while they're doing strenuous activities. But again, it carries over and then they're not ever really breathing correctly. The things that we've seen is, I'll see people who talk about how their balance is better, right? Because multifidus is one of those proprioceptive muscles in the spine and that multifidus when you're ab gripping when you're holding everything tight that multifidus is being asked to do less and less and then now you're locked in place pelvis is locked in place and people are using their ankles and feet for almost all of their you know all of their stability or all of their balance so i mean it's the number of things that we'll see as far as once we start getting more areas of freedom we start seeing an improvement in so many different things. Well, it allows the body to function like it's supposed to. You know, your thoracolumbar fascia in your back is is not static tissue. It's it's supposed to move. But if you're ab gripping, you know, it it doesn't move. It doesn't adapt to the load. It doesn't adapt to the position. So you can just simply with an inhale, exhale, and it doesn't need to be, when you are aligned properly and you get the right amount of excursion, it doesn't need to be forceful or difficult breath. You can have tremendous amount of stability. Um, stand on one leg, do whatever you want to do, and run a marathon, whatever you want to do. And that stability is just a, a beautiful thing because you're breathing anyway. 
Right. You know, I, I used to say, you know, like sprinters will, will tighten everything down and run. And long distance runners will loosen everything up and run, right? And as a sprinter, I've always been one of those people that, shoot, I just tighten everything up. Well, there was no reason for me to be driving across town in a sprinter's mode. No. <laughs> There's no reason for you to open your front door in a sprinter's mode. Right. You know, I would find myself when I start like standing at my standing table documenting when I was talking to a patient. I would document and talk to the patient and not take a breath for, I don't, I never timed it, but too long. Right. Too long. So here I was trying to get my psoas to quit. Uh, inversion tables, McKinsey exercises, right? Um, you, I had Theracane. a, I had a Theracane <laughs> that I was pushing on it. I was trying to get, you know, I'd get people to release it when they could. I'm, I'm doing the John Sarno, trying to, trying to breathe and relax the muscles. I've been doing all of these things, all of which I didn't know before all this was related to the psoas. And it was daily. I was doing it daily. You taught me how to, how to quit ab gripping for me, it was a lot of butt clenching, right? I'd be like, why am, why is my butt cheek so clenched all the time? Well, you're not alone. A lot right. of people that are ab gripping are also holding their pelvic floor. They're holding their glutes, you know, and for you and I, it seems like there's not a conversation that doesn't somehow will the patient come back to firing a glute and understandably so because it intersects and transfers the power and the force whether it's up or down. Right. So with that, so my right psoas was tight. Because of that, my external rotators and my glute couldn't fire. So we were working like crazy trying to get my glutes to fire, but they just wouldn't. And then once I started breathing, my psoas relaxed, I could fire my glutes, and I have not, I've probably released my psoas two times in the last three years or two, two times in the last two years. Right. From daily to once a year. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, and I mentioned this previously, but my time, you know, I keep track of times with, with this, with this body weight CrossFit that I do. I, I, I've take I've gone away from the deadlifts, even though I, I do plan on doing deadlifts again, I've gone away from it. So I do body weight and I keep track of my times. In that month after you taught me, which was the month after I turned 50, I broke all my records as far as that went that had been, that I'd been keeping track of for the past seven years, all I mean, there's 13 different workouts that I do that I time. All 13 had a new record the month after I was taught how to breathe correctly. Right. And remember I told you about just your turnover. If you're running or jogging and you change your alignment and you stop gripping your abs and stop with the sternum up, you know, pointed to the sky type of posture, your turnover is quicker. So it, you have to adapt because you're, it's just the ease of movement is incredible. Like your body wants to do that. And you know, it's a wonderful design. God designed us wonderfully because it, it, you shouldn't have to think about it That's because right. you don't think about breathing. And once you, once it becomes a, a new normal of your alignment and your process, you don't think about it. And then you can focus on throwing the javelin or running your 5k or hopefully doing your deadlift. There you go. <laughs> you know, and we talked about the fact that there are certain muscles in your body that have a tonality, a constant contraction that are supposed to be there, like the arch of your foot, you know, perhaps the transverse abdominis, perhaps the multifidus. These are certain muscles, you know, the front of the, the, the muscles in the front of the neck. These are muscles, you know, and, and I've called them forever bracing, even though that's confusing to most physical therapists. Um, these muscles are supposed to have a certain timber and, and tonality. But they can't when everything around it is gripping. And, and really what you've found, and I've, and I've heard you express this to me, is, is that when 
we quit doing all these, this breath holding and holding in a fart, as I like to say, all of a sudden we discover the tone that was there and we can work on the tone that is there and then forget about it. Right. And the tone is fluid. You know, it's a fluid dynamic. It's there, but it still has an ebb and flow. The tone isn't static from the time you wake up in the morning until the time you go to bed at night. It's, it's different. The tone in your foot is there, but it's different if you're running versus if you're sitting at your desk dictating notes. Well, very good. Very good. So, so this star, so when you uh, kind of discovered this was, was right about the time that we were opening up the body guitar clinic, which was, which was a change from, you know, I've been at College Park for 15 years. Over the past two years, I've been slowly moving. I'm never going to move all of it over here, but I'm going to have a portion of it over here. And then you guys created kind of this specialty clinic over here that is that again has been a has been a, a revelation I think as it's progressed. So talk about that just a little bit. Well, again, I have an amazing staff of therapists that are all very smart and bright individuals, and we're, we're all a little curious, and um, they like to you know change it up. So we have therapists that want to do vestibular. We have therapists that um, focus on women's health. We have therapists that treat lymph, and so. Um, at College Park, we offered some of that, but not all of that. And as we got more into the breathing, we really felt like and saw how much the pelvic floor was involved and how much it was kind of being overlooked with hip, knee, you know, traditional hip, knee, back rehab, and that, that we needed to take a closer look at that. And, you know, people sometimes get a little anxious if you start talking about pelvic floor, but a lot of what we do and most of what we do is, is an external approach to just having someone a be aware of it and understand that if they're, if it's really tight and they're gripping all the time, much like their abs, or if they have no tone in that pelvic floor, like you talked about the tone in the foot, there's a certain amount of tone and a certain amount of movement of contraction and relaxation that needs to happen. And so um, here at this clinic, we do have the women's health and um, pelvic floor specialty, and that just really tied into the whole evolution of using breath for our central stability system instead of ab gripping and unteaching ab gripping. That's been the hardest thing. We taught our patients very, very well, and our patients learned very, very well, and so it's hard to unteach it. it that's that. Instead of learning the new thing being difficult, it's actually harder to unlearn the old thing. So uh, what do you see in the future? And I'm not talking, I mean, you can do it. You can, you can take that question any way you want. Is it the next six months or is it the next five years? Or when you, when you kind of look forward as far as this goes, what's your vision? Well, you know, if you would have asked me that in the early 2000s, my vision would have been, you know, TVA and neutral spine. And, you know, now my vision, my vision involves the diaphragm, the pelvic floor, educating pe- more people about how to implement a very natural thing like breathing to create the stability and give them more function and freedom and pain relief. And I just see that evolving and I just see us getting more creative with how we can give that patient that tool for their toolbox. And, and you just figure out what exercise, what activity, whatever their goal is, how does that tie in and how do you, how do you evolve with that? I mean, as you know, I find this incredibly fascinating because first of all, it applied to me. And, and sometimes I think that, you know, 
uh, I, I believe in divine inspiration mm-hmm. and, and sometimes you have to be pushed towards divine inspiration mm-hmm. <laughs> and me, and me hurting my back deadlifting was definitely a push. Uh, so I find this incredibly interesting and, and anybody who's listening to this may indeed end up with more questions rather than more answers sure. from this because it's too much to explain in a 30 something minute uh, podcast. So if somebody wants to contact, if a physical therapist or, or musculoskeletal specialist wants to contact you, how would they do so? They can reach out via email info at collegeparkpt.com or info at ESPTKC.com. Very good. Okay. So this has been a, a fabulous discussion. Um, I, I think that uh, a lot of people are going to kind of stop breath holding today and see sure. what, and see what sure. happens. Hopefully they'll, they'll spend the next, you know, half an hour really concentrating on that breathing, but there's so much more to this. You already know that I'm going to invite you back for other things, but sure. let's see kind of how the comments go with this and, and see if you know, we may even have an AMA, you know, a ask me anything where I come back and, and read people's uh, questions and, sure. and kind of figure our way through this. So, yeah. and then if they just start paying attention, are they holding their breath when they stand up out of a chair? Are they holding their breath when they get in and out of their car? Are they holding their breath when they pick up their baby? Are they holding their breath when they, you know, bend over and pet their dog? It's the simple little things that if you really start paying attention, you probably are at some point throughout the day in very mundane, non-vigorous tasks. You're holding your breath unnecessarily. Very good. Okay. This has been great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen. Please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe. Also, visit bodyguitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships. Build them. Until next time, body guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners, get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine and Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.